Greetings, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Are you hungry and thirsty for reality? This message is for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality. And if you don't want reality, you need to pray that you get a hunger and a thirst for ultimate reality. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the ultimate manifestation and perfection of love, which I could very in depth explain is the very source of reality. But at this moment in time, I just want to mention to those that are new that I have a website at ultimatemeaning.com where there is a flip book with very original writing by the gifting of the Spirit of God through me that you can read for free. And the print that is highlighted in red, and there is lots of print that is, are all links to YouTube videos that are very profound and amazing that cover many fields of science and also archaeology that highly confirm the reality of what I am sharing here. And I am sharing about the one true eternal God who is the ultimate manifestation and perfection of love. In the Old Testament of the Bible, his name is often in the King James Bible, Lord God, the Lord God has sent me, and so on. Usually the word Lord in the original Hebrew is the word for Yahweh, which means the I am that I am, the ultimate reality that is separate and above and apart and beyond creation the Almighty. The second word, God, means the Almighty's plural, referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so I just briefly mention here that for God to be Almighty, he must rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond creation, in creation, and filling all dimensions of creation in time and space. So as the Father, he is beyond creation, he is fully expressed into creation, to communicate with his creation in the Son. The word Son means expression. The Son is the full expression and the only one full expression of the Father. And then the Holy Spirit in omnipresence filling all things. So this message is for those that have come to know the one true eternal God through Jesus Christ. Yes, God's love is so great that he can communicate with us little creatures on this little planet, which is like a little speck of dust amidst all the grains of sand upon the earth and grains of dust. And yes, he came even before he was incarnated as a babe. He came to Abraham. In Genesis 18, there's three angels that are standing before Abraham. They look like normal human beings in a certain sense, but he probably recognized they were more than just human. And so he sees them at his tent door, about 10 feet ahead of him probably. He bows before them and says, can I make you a really good meal? In essence, that's what he says in Genesis 18 there. And he does. And he addresses one of them as Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for the one true eternal God. 
So I want to share with the churches gathered around Jesus Christ throughout the world what God is saying today by his spirit. Today is October the 6th of 2022 on Thursday. What is he saying in this time of such serious crisis when there has been vaccinations that are causing mass genocide around the world, the greatest mass genocide in history? And that's very evident from all the solid data and science that cannot be refuted that is coming out from insurance companies, that's coming out from the morgues, that's coming out from the whistleblowers in the U.S. Army. Just go to renz, R-E-N-Z hyphen law.com. And there's a bunch of lawyers there that are gathering all that information together in the U.S. Army. Those that have had two or more vaccinations, I believe it is two or more, have had an increase in neurological damage, 1,080%, for example. So we are living in a time of great crisis. And I seek to speak as the oracles of God, because the word of God commands us in 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And that is what I will seek to do. This is further explained in Revelations 19.10, which says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is out of worshiping God in spirit and in truth with great reverence humility and love towards God that we are filled with his spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves that results in creative utterances. Whether it's in the form of a song or a word of encouragement or a prophetic utterance and a word of knowledge or whatever way it comes forth in a prayer, in a testimony, it can come forth and be totally God speaking through us. We are to seek when we assemble together to allow God to speak through us, each member of the body, not just the people at the front. We're gathered around Christ and we should be more conscious of Christ in our midst than anyone else. So one of the things I do to facilitate speaking is the oracles of God as I cast lots in great reverence before God to get the two chapters that he wants me to speak from. Why two? Well, I use two independent random applications on the internet to get them because they bear witness with each other as to what the theme is that God is emphasizing. Many times when I cast lots, it is way beyond coincidence and very evident. Other times, the theme is harder to perceive, but it is always there in those two chapters. And usually when it's harder to perceive, the message is even more in-depth and richer. So I want to share with you the two chapters I received today. But before I do, I did pick a song this time. I decided not to do it by the casting of the lot. Um, so one that was I felt appropriate to what chapters I received. So this is the song. I'm picking from a tremendous number of songs, 1,080 hymns from a hymn book that has hymns throughout church history and from the underground church in China from the work of Watchman E, who was martyred back in 1972. 
I mean, all the different churches that were planted back then had very rich songs coming out of great persecution. So those are in here as well. And also from other sources of churches I've been to that were very rich in their worship. And so this one uh, comes from a particular movement, but it's very rich. It, it, it actually comes, I'm not sure, if, I think it's from church history, this one. So here we go with this song. to come to that place where there is a genuine belief from the depths of our being, from our heart, that believes the reality of who God is. I want to share with you the two passages I received today by the casting of Lot. And also yesterday, because yesterday I really wanted to preach. I found, found I was very impacted. Yesterday was also the... Um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And I felt it was very appropriate yesterday as well. So I will probably include yesterday's two chapters as well. But the two chapters I received today are Hebrews 7 and Ezekiel 12. And really, there doesn't seem to be a common theme between those when you read them. 
at first, but then you begin to realize what that theme is. And the common theme between Hebrews 7 and Ezekiel 12 is that captivity by the law of self-righteous deception is undone by the law of captivity to break the stubbornness of rebellion into the righteousness of God from our own righteousness. That is what is common between those two chapters. But before I get into those two chapters, I do want to go in, back to yesterday, where I received by the casting of Lot before God, Lamentations 3 and 1 Samuel chapter 1. So I want to first of all read some of the verses from Lamentations 3. Now Lamentations, when you begin to read chapter 3, it is very, it can be very depressing to read because it's all about all the terrible things that is happening to Jeremiah the prophet or to someone that is describing themselves maybe as representing as an individual Israel as a nation as well. But it is like they're saying, I put my mouth in the dust, I'm eating gravel, I'm oppressed. It was almost like they were saying it was I feel feel like it was better that I should have not been born. I mean, that that's how depressing the first part of this chapter is. I don't want to go into it. But then it says this, starting in verse 19, which I will start out with a little bit more of this depressing description. It says, Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. You can be sure the kind of affliction that is being described here would totally break someone. It would bring them to the point where they wouldn't live. Even Paul the Apostle said that he despaired in some of the trials he was going through in his service to Christ, that they despaired even of life itself, but it was that they might not trust in themselves, but in God that raises the dead. And we go on here and we read this. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him, it is good that a man should hope and quietly wait for the salvation of Yahweh. That's what it is in the original. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. He is just totally humbled before God to the point that he's putting his mouth in the dust and saying, is there hope for me? I am so wretched. I see how terrible my sins are. I'm realizing that the reason all of these terrible things are happening in my life is because God, I have not, I have deceived myself. 
to live and to justify a life that is just self-worshipping, self-centered, insular. From a relationship that cares about other people, that has tears for the lost, from a relationship that cares about you and about honoring you and living for you and pleasing you. And so he is in great humility before God. And so we continue to read here. He putteth his mouth in the dust, if so be there may be hope. He giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. He is filled full with reproach, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. So God has a purpose in why he allows such severity even in our lives, if we are a believer. If something, it does say in the word of God, after you've suffered a while, he will strengthen, establish, and settle you. We know the word of God says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We start out like Jacob, being those that are connivers and deceivers. The word Jacob means he will take by the heel. And then we come to a place of trial and of crisis. And Jacob experienced his trial of persevering through so many things that Laban did to him that were deceptive and order to get his wives. And then now he thinks he's going to lose it all because he's facing Esau. And everything is almost at a point of, well, that's when the Lord appeared, didn't it? And God revealed his mercy to him because Esau showed mercy to him. Now, the other chapter here is for Samuel. And this is about Hannah. Many of us know the story of Hannah. I don't have in front of me right now all the verses, but I'm just going to read the ones that are important. There is two women and a godly man. He had two wives. One of them was Hannah and the other was Penina, if I'm pronouncing it right. Penina was giving him lots of children, but Hannah wasn't getting any children. She was completely barren. And it was grieving her heart. And yet her husband would come to her and say, why are you grieved? Am I not better than 10 children to you? But she was so grieved because the other lady, Paniah, would persecute her and say, oh, you don't have children. And, you know, I don't know. It says there in First Dan Daniel, it's interesting. It says uh, um, in First Samuel chapter 1, it says, he persecuted her. And then later on, it says she. It's like the enemy is behind her, accusing her. You're barren. You're empty. And yet you still think God is on your side and that God is with you. How could God be with you? He's cursed you. You have a curse on your life because of past generations. You see, that's what the enemy does. He comes and he tries to get us to believe these lies. 
It's like Joshua the high priest that is described in the book of Zechariah. I think it might be chapter 9. He's clothed with filthy garments, and Satan is at his right hand accusing him and saying, see, that's who you are. You're filthy. You're useless. You're worthless. You failed God. You're like the children of Israel. You're being cast into the wilderness where you're going to die. God. But this priest was hungry for God. Jacob was hungry for God. He was seeking God. It wasn't like, yeah, he had these deceptions in him and these things that needed to be dealt with, but he was seeking God. And the issue that is shown here in this chapter is that. Blessed are they that quietly wait for the salvation of God. It says here, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him and to the soul that seeketh him. And God will honor those that even in all the deception that he hasn't worked out of their lives, he will put them through the chastisement. And God in his love is severe. He is severe with us because he loves us so much. He is willing to be severe to bring us to the place where we are purified in our walk with God. And so has been the experience of the patriarchs and of the saints and of my life. I have certainly been like Jacob in many ways. But I have sought God all my life. From the time I was 12 years old, I used to go in the woods and pray an hour and a half each day, seeking God and believing God to restore his church. Back then, I even prayed seven hours. I remember when I was young, maybe, I don't know if I was 12, but I was certainly around 14 or something. I would say, God, restore your church. Because I could see the typical church that I went to, which was the evangelical church at that time. It was a far cry from what I saw in the book of Acts in the word of God. And I had that desire and that vision way back then to see the glory of God in the land of the living. And it stayed with me all my life. I found myself in positions going to this church and that church where I had such a desire to see the glory of God come into that church and do a mighty work. And yet it was so confined and so limited that I couldn't stand it. But God had to deal with what was in my own life, the self-righteousness in my own life so that I wasn't so lacking in patience towards others. And so here, Hannah comes to a place out of the desperation of her barrenness. And yes, often one of the things God uses in our lives is famine. He used famine to cause the children of Israel to go to Pharaoh, where they had to confront their brother Joseph. Eventually, they were brought to the place where they were broken of their own self-righteousness. But it also happened in Joseph because it says concerning Joseph in the word of God, until his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. And that is what God does. He allows barrenness in our lives. And I can truly say in my own life, and I'm very young for my age, thank God I consider it a great gift from the Lord that I'm healthy. And of course, I've been very knowledgeable in health. That's part of the reason. But I thank God for that. But with all my life, I wanted a wife and I'm still single. And here I am a lot younger looking for my age. And I don't dare say my age, but it's way up there. 
<laughs> chronologically it isn't, or chronologically it is, but biologically it isn't. But here's the thing. God knows. Abraham didn't have a child and he's 99 years old and looks hopeless. And he's calling us in this time to be like Hannah. What, did, what happened to Hannah? She became so hungry and so desperate with God that she was willing. She said, God, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. I won't hold on to him. I'll give him to you. And it happened. She gave her son Samuel to the Lord. And that word Samuel means something to the effect that, well, I have the definition here. I should, I could put it up here. It means heard of God, heard of God. She was heard by God. In her desperation, the Lord heard her cry and he blessed her with Samuel and she was greatly blessed after that. And Samuel became a great blessing. You see, through the trials, those things that we desire and that are dreams in our life that may be good in themselves are purified to the place where they can bear fruit unto God when God allows them to come into our lives in his appointed time. Now I must go to Hebrews 7 and Ezekiel 12 as well. I'm covering two in one day this time. I know that's a lot, but in Hebrews 7, it really is kind of a continuation from yesterday. Because really yesterday, what did we see in those two chapters that I just shared about? What is the commonality between them? It's God's allowance of affliction to purify us for fruitfulness. In both of those chapters, Hannah became fruitful. In Lamentations, we see the process described in detail. And it is so easy when we are in these trials to become unthankful if we do not have a right perception of God. But a person that's been really born again of the Spirit, that has been brought forth of the new of the Spirit, and that, by the way, and I don't have time to get into all the explanation of it all, was the experience of saints from the time of Adam on. Christ expected Nicodemus to know that before he died on the cross. And people were deeply converted. The difference between after is that when Christ had died and risen again, then the soul and the spirit could be cleansed so that there could be the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But it says, for you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you, even when he could dwell only with their soul and spirit because their flesh could be cleansed by animal sacrifice. They were born of the Spirit, which means that their soul and their spirit opened up like from a fist to an open hand. And then when that hand is open, another open hand comes against it so that hand cannot close. The other open hand is the Holy Spirit. And then you have a new nature by the Spirit dwelling with them and after indwelling. And so I won't go into that. And yes, it talks about in the Old Testament, that the whole nation will have a heart of flesh in one day and all of that. That's speaking corporately, but individually, there was always people that were being converted from the beginning of time till now, from the beginning of Adam till now, that experienced genuine rebirth. And genuine rebirth comes out of 
the genuine fear of God, because the genuine fear of God is a deep turning from the heart that chooses to recognize God for who in reality he truly is in the perfection of his love, which is the, I'm talking about the purity of his love, actually, is a better word, the purity of his love, the integrity of his love that will not tolerate what is contrary to love, love being that quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice, because any lesser choice as such would obviously have a measure of corruption. And I'm speaking about agape love. It's greater than feelings. It always chooses the highest lasting good. And it is, as it were, a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to this love that is so pure. It is the holiness of God, the defensive aspect of the being of God. And when we choose to turn from our heart and recognize that God's severity towards us and all the suffering we see in this world does not make us unthankful because we recognize that God is good in his severity because it ensures that corruption is annulled, assuring a destiny where there's no corruption, no one is heaven, that will eventually come down upon this earth and conquer all the corruption. And eventually there will be the fire of God that will devour this earth and the solar system and probably maybe the whole, I don't know how far that goes, but he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth where there is no corruption and we will be in it. But there is the millennial reign of Christ before that, where heaven conquers the earth and comes down in great measure. The emergence of the fifth dimension with this very inferior third dimension. I talk about that because I'm writing an in-depth book on the afterlife, which is basically done. All I have to do is get the grammar and spelling done. Can't do it this too much this week, but should be done in the next week or so. So I'm not going to get into all of that for time. What I want to point out here is that the genuine fear of God is so important. I want to go to these verses in Hebrews 7 and Ezekiel 12 for today and just point out what the message is there. In Hebrews 7, I have a few verses I've written down here, or I've pasted. And it is yet, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For verily, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. When God gave the law to Israel, it wasn't his intention that they should get their focus on the law instead of a love relationship with him. The law, it says here in Hebrews 7, was given in order to keep the seed that would come, which is Christ, in order to keep the nation righteous because there's all these tendencies in a nation where if you don't have those laws, for all the more the corruption to increase. And so I'm not going to get into the explanation of all that, but 
the law, it says in Galatians, was our schoolmaster to bring us onto Christ. Galatians 3, 23 to 26. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up onto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now when he's saying that but before faith came, we were kept under the law, he is not saying that there wasn't faith before the law, because there was, and there was faith when the law was given as well. He is emphasizing a principle here that applies at a certain level of understanding. But he's not negating the fact because he himself describes how Abraham had faith, which was before the law. God expected the nation of Israel to have a love-faith relationship even when he gave the law. Because he always spoke in context of the law that the important thing was that they loved God with all their heart, with all their mind and being and strength. But what happens is there is a law of the deception of our own self-righteousness, the tendency to worship ourselves is veiled in our own righteousness that comes out of ourselves that keeps us from the righteousness of Christ. It was talked about in 2 Corinthians 3 where it talks about the veil that is on the children of Israel in the reading of the law. It happened to Cain. That was where it first happened. He became a bit unthankful about all that he saw. He got his focus on all the consequences of God's holiness and his own life suffering and those around him and then he began to perceive God as some kind of a dictator that required appeasement in order to be pleased. And so it, mean, it depended all on him. And he lost sight of the fact that the integrity of God's love, which is the holiness of God's love, is good. And so he brought an offering that was all related to his own ego, his righteousness. Oh, I am so great before God that I can sacrifice this. And that same principle happened. There was that idolatrous city set up by Cain in the pre-flood world, idolatrous monotheism, that also was set up in the city of Erudu, the first city after the flood, the big city. And then the second one was built by Nimrod. They all worshiped the moon god. The moon god had went to Babylon later on in history, and then from there to Saudi Arabia became the chief god that was chosen of all the gods by that religion that marches around the rock that we know. And so we have this idolatry of the law, which is really a worship of self, of glorying in ourselves and really not recognizing God for who he is because there's not a true turning in the heart. It's just a matter of performance to be accepted by God, outward performance like Cain was bringing. But there's no turning from the heart. There's no genuine fear of God that reciprocates who God is in his holiness as good and really 
when you see that God's holiness is good, you are undone because you see how far you fall short. And you cannot help but cry out to God in desperation. But sometimes, and in many cases, it takes us going into captivity to have our own righteousness taken away that is out of self and is a deception of the worship of self via the focus on our performance in the law, which is a focus on self instead of on a relationship with God. And so, in a sense, when you're looking at the law, you're looking at yourself and worshiping yourself when that is your focus above loving God and being caught up for who he is. The genuine fear of God reciprocates God first in his holiness, and out of that reciprocates God in the greatness of his mercy because you recognize the greatness of his love towards you like as is described here in Lamentations. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Let us never think that and buy into a false theology that God is not severe on sin. Oh, why does it say, well, we, we can come to God just as we are? Well, it doesn't say that. You cannot come to God if you're not repentant in your heart. You're not coming to God even if you say you are. And you go forward on the altar and you think that you can be accepted before God and yet live in, in, in doing those things that are displeasing to him. You come to God with a heart that's always saying, search me and know my heart. Now, I know time is going on, but I want to emphasize that God allows, even in our lives as believers, us to be unraveled from the deception in us through trials and tests to bring us to a place where we're not holding on to our life, where we're truly free, where we're truly loving God with all our being and strength. It says, if we continue in his word, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free and how true that is. So the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified out of faith, pistis in the Greek, which means moral persuasion in who God is. And the genuine fear of God is a reciprocation of faith that is working by love because it is a receiving of who God is as could only be to be ultimately trustworthy. And you cannot put your trust in what is not ultimately trustworthy. And a wrong perception of God, like Eve had bought into from Satan, is not viewing God as ultimately trustworthy. God is calling us as his people to return to the genuine fear of God where we perceive God and reciprocate God fully in reverence of who he is and his holiness, first of all. And out of that, all the more of who he is and his love towards us manifested in grace and mercy to forgive us. And as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, we are, it says in God's word, so we are to walk in him. And genuine rebirth is the breaking of that deception of self where the fist of self-righteousness opens up and says, I surrender all. 
And then the Holy Spirit comes in. We are broken of our state of pride. God is calling us in this hour to return to the genuine fear of God. I cannot continue much longer on this message. I do want you to know I have a book on the on Amazon called God Headship and God Headship in Body Invasion, which is all about what you can do in your congregation to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting your congregation. In this hour of crisis, we cannot go back to being the church the way it was. It is time to wake up and to become God's fearless conquering bride church, his house of prayer and his house of holiness, and to come into the order around which Christ is the center in the meetings always. Doesn't mean there isn't leadership, but the leadership releases and facilitates the body to fully function in their gifts so that there won't be schism or denominative mindset in the body. Because it says that he so tempered the body together that he gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. And so when we facilitate each member of the body to function fully, that means God can put a more abundant gifting upon someone that is maybe more easily despised and not so charismatic to humble those that tend to be looked up to. So the mountains come down and the valleys raise and the crooked places are made speed. Some people they worship in a way that is like strange fire and that's not pleasing to God either. The people come into our midst and they see weirdness. Paul emphasized that if they come into your midst, and you're all prophesying, they'll know that God's among you. But maybe if you're speaking in tongues, they'll think, oh, yeah, let's get out of here. You know, it's not that we become seeker sensitive. No, if we're really real with God, we're just going to be who we really are. And yeah, there can be things that are strange. And there is a place for all of these things that, you know, Paul himself said, if we are beside ourselves, it is to God. Well, God bless you all. I cannot continue. This message is getting near 40 minutes long or more right now. So thank you for listening to this message. I appreciate your support in this time by purchasing the book. And the one that's coming up on the afterlife is going to be really good. Uh, that's going to be an amazing book. So God bless you all. Thank you.